Welcome. I'm Cindy McMillan, and this is Exploring the Seasons of Life podcast. I'm thrilled that you're tuning in because today we're talking about mindset and dreaming big. Each week, I interview coaches and spiritual explorers from all walks of life about beginnings, endings, and the messy bits in between. Self-love, well-being, and mindset are at the heart of our conversations because once you change the inside, the outside will begin to change as well. Before I introduce my guest, would you do me a quick favor? I don't say this nearly enough, but if you want to support the show, the number one thing you can do is share it on your social media and tag me. That will help me get the word out and I'd be forever grateful. So my guest today, Jesse Da Silva, is a mindset coach and business consultant who helps entrepreneurs start and scale businesses help CEOs create supportive business cultures that attract top talent and increase profits and helps unhappy employees find their dream jobs at dream companies for dream pay. So please help me welcome my guest, Jesse De Silva. Jesse, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm honored that you're here. I'm honored to be here. I was telling you right before we recorded that I love listening to your podcast just for your voice. It's so soothing. So I'm glad to glad to be on here and get to experience it in real time. <laughs> well, thank you. I really do appreciate that. And I love that you've listened to the podcast. So you know my signature question is what does exploring the seasons of life mean to you personally or in your business? For me, exploring the seasons of life is really being open to change and following whatever is lighting you up in that moment. So I see a lot of times people pursue things, whether it's business or career, they do things because they think this is going to be the thing that makes money or this is the thing that other people seem to want And so I'm going to do that, or this is what I've always been doing in business. I'm just going to keep doing it in business. And really, I mean, career as well. And really like exploring the seasons of life means being open to evolve as a person and to allow your career and your business to evolve with you because nobody goes out into a career or a business like a beautiful green pasture and you're just going to graze the rest of your life there. Most people have between five to 10 different careers in their lifetime. And I think exploring the seasons of life means being open to making those changes and letting it evolve with you. Jesse, I love that, especially when you when you mentioned that about it's not going out into this pasture and just kind of like grazing there because our life and our careers are not this linear trajectory, so to speak. It has its ups and downs and the messy bits as we talk about sometimes in the podcast. And I love the idea of just the exploring the seasons of life. It is about change and acceptance. So thank you. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's a lot of people think that the ultimate goal in life is how to find being happy. And really, it's a byproduct of what we do. And it's hard to connect with that when you're kind of borrowing dreams from other people or a past version of yourself, like really like being open to change and not resisting it. That's what allows you to find happiness more often than not. 
Now, on your website, you say, dream bigger until you scare other people. (laughs) Okay, I love that. And as I read it, I thought, ooh, that's scaring me just saying it because (laughs) dream bigger. That's what we all want Mm -hmm. to do. So what does that mean to you? Oh my gosh. So this is actually like really close to my heart because what I find when people come to talk to me and when I coach them, I always want to know, I always ask them, what is the big dream for your life? And I will say like, if everything went exactly according to plan, which of course never happens, but that's okay. That's not the question. What does your dream life look like? And I say like, it can be anything. Like it can be about your career. It can be about your family, your relationships. It can be like, if you want like a a mansion on the beach, like I'm, I'm not the person who's going to judge whatever that answer is. I just want to know what is the big dream? Because when I know the big dream, I can help you connect the dots between where you are now and how you get there. And I am always astounded by how many people say, Oh, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I guess it's, I guess it's this. And I'm like, no, go bigger. They'll be like, you know, oh, I just want to be able to like pay my bills and not worry about it. Or I just want to like not hate my job. Like I don't, I want to like wake up and be happy every morning. I'm like, let's go bigger than that. And what I find is that for a lot of people, adulthood really like knocks the shit out of them, honestly. So especially like younger people who have come of age during a really rocky economy and have only known that. I've only known like this dog eat dog world as far as jobs go, careers go, the gig economy goes. They almost become afraid to dream because dreaming in the past, like they were so far removed from what they wanted or what they dreamed for their life that they feel like they have to play it safe now. And so that's what I what I'm asking them is like I want your dreams like your dreams should scare you because if it doesn't scare you it means that you're not challenging yourself to get there. And that doesn't mean that like you know just because you have this big scary dream for your life that doesn't mean your goals for the next year should scare you. I mean like that they should still feel achievable, but you want to make sure you're going in a certain direction so that way you can like enjoy that pursuit of the ultimate goal and of the dream. But that's really my way, like saying your dream should scare you, your dream should scare other people, is that that's how you know that you're dreaming big enough. It's like a way to combat all of that life experience that's kind of beaten you down and told you that you have to be realistic and you have to like expect the worst. Really, I want to combat that. I want to give people permission to dream again. Why do you think that we have stopped dreaming big? You know, when we're when we're kids and, you know, laying out on the grass, looking up, you know, we have these you know, these dreams, we're going to be an astronaut, we're going to be whatever it may be. And then as we get older, we stop dreaming big like that. I really think it's that, you know, you go, you have this idea of how your life is going to be when you're a kid, or even an adolescent, like when I was a kid, like I and this is something I would say, even before I really understood what it meant. I was always saying, well, I'm going to be famous, I want to be famous, I want to be famous. And like I, like my parents, I remember being like 10 years old or younger and they would be like, well, if you don't learn to clean your room, 
Like what, how are you gonna, how are you gonna survive when you're out on your own? Like mom's not going to be here to clean your room for you. Dad's not going to be here to help you clean your room. And I would like look at them like they had two heads and I would be like, I'm going to have a cleaner, obviously. Like I was like, I'm going to be famous. I'm not going to be cleaning my room. What are you talking about? <laughs> like I had this just belief, like this rock solid belief that that's like what my future was going to hold. Right. And it's funny because, you know, then I got into like musical theater at school and then that's all I wanted to be like throughout my adolescence, like my childhood and adolescence. I want to be an actress. I want to be an actress. I want to be an actress. And my parents were, when I was young, were very, were like, oh yeah, we love her starring in the school plays and they love talking about it with their friends. And then like, as I continued to say, I want to be an actress. I want to be an actress. Once you get, once I got to high school, it was like, they wanted me to dial it back where they were like, okay, that's so lovely that you love acting and you love singing and you're so talented. We're so proud of you. Yes. But why don't you go for something more stable? And so it was like, go after something stable. So that way you have the freedom to pursue that. But what they perceived as stable was doctor or lawyer, right? My parents are second generation Americans or no first generation Americans. I'm second generation. And so it was still a lot of the immigrant mentality of like, doctor or lawyer, doctor or lawyer. Those are the only two like professions that exist for a lot of um, immigrant parents. And so I was like, okay, well, being a kid, that makes sense to me. Okay. I need to go after something that's going to guarantee me an income that allows me to thrive and gives me the freedom to do this without understanding the kind of work ethic you need in order to get one of those jobs, like in order to become a doctor or lawyer, right? So, you know, when I went into college, it was again, okay, go out, go major in a thing that you're naturally good at. So you're naturally good at writing. So go major in journalism. And I wound up falling in love with it, like very quickly, like abandoned dreams of being an actress because I loved the process of being a reporter. I loved journalism so much and I was pursuing that. But even that, my parents were like, we're so glad you're editor, editor of the paper. We're so glad you've gotten these impressive internships, but maybe you need to do something more stable. You need to find a job when you graduate, not just any job or like not just a reporter job. So I did what was safe. And at that point, it's 2009, it's the recession and so I took a job working at a PR firm and I hated it. I, I hated it. I hated everything about it. Even though it was based on writing, it was not the kind of writing I loved to do. I was not in my zone of genius there. I just felt like a fish out of water. I felt like I was having to be very performative. I couldn't be myself. And because I hated it and I had no other answers and I didn't know what else to do and it was, a you know, the economy had had the bottom pulled out from under it, I saw the only solution what I can do is go to law school because I have skills that translate to that. And I ended up falling in love with law school. I think I'm the only person who's ever enjoyed law school. <laughs> uh, but I enjoyed it. I loved it. And then I graduate and I realize the reality of being a lawyer is a lot different than being a law student. So here I was, I wound up in another career trajectory where I was unhappy. And I'm telling this story because I think that a lot of people resonate with how they've made decisions along the way. But you can see where 
my goal, like when I was a kid, I had said, I want to be famous, which at its core is about being seen, right? I want to be seen. I want people to respect my words. I want them to like listen when I speak. I want them to take my advice. I want them to take me seriously. I got further and further away from that. Like as I was making decisions based in what's going to give me stability and what's going to give me money, what's going to help me. And none of them were actually providing either of those things. I wasn't happy. I wasn't finding happiness and I wasn't, I also wasn't getting paid. So a lot of people don't realize that the starting salary for a lot of attorneys is around like $40,000. So, and that's the average, that is the average. So like, you know, the positions where you go work in a big corporate firm and you make six figures right out of law school, that's a very small percentage of lawyers who start out that way. And so I was working, I started a small firm, then I started working for the Florida government, criminal appeals. And like, you know, each one of these things I thought was going to be the dream job until I was in it. And at that time, once I had been at my job with the government for long enough, I'd gone, you know, personally, I'd gone through a breakup, really bad breakup. And I had decided because way back in journalism school, I had at the University of Florida, I had said, you know, well, I always want to move to DC. That's going to be my ultimate goal. I want to move back to DC. I want to pursue journalism. I want to like report on that. So I decided, fuck it. It's time to just do it and like figure it out. So I decided I'm going to use my legal education and I'm going to use my journalism skills and I'm going to find a job reporting on the law, like on criminal law, which is what I love. I'm going to find a job reporting on it. And that's going to be the thing that I do. I was committed. And I ended up getting that job and I doubled my salary and I got to like, you know, I found my dream apartment and my dream life started coming together. And that was when I realized like really and truly like you can have whatever you want as long as you're willing not just to dream big, but to like take some risky steps to get there right? And like calculated risks. These aren't like risk-taking behaviors that are putting you at detriment or anybody else at detriment. This is about like going big. But three years in, it's no longer my dream job. I think like maybe I actually want to be a part of the fight. I end up getting a job with a nonprofit. Like I networked my way there, which I love to talk about because that's a system I turned into my initial business as a job hunt coach, because I had developed my own system being an introvert, somebody who doesn't like, you know, networking events, doesn't really thrive in big crowds. I developed my own system to grow my network. And I made that leap without ever sending in a cold job application. I had gotten this job completely through referral to the point where I was the only person interviewed. So I get this job And I realized very quickly it was not a good fit, but I stuck with it because I still had a lot of that programming that said, well, you need the stability first. You need to like stay here because this is what you have and this is what's safe. And then I realized I want to, I actually want to be a business owner. I actually, what I've always, what I want to do is like be a life coach. And that sounds like it would be super random based on the whole history that I just gave, except for the fact that all along the way from childhood until right now, the common thread is that people always came to me for advice, always came to me advice on everything, 
on finding a job, on how to, you know, navigate relationship issues, on how to figure out what they wanted to do with their lives. Like everybody always came to me for advice and nothing lit me up, like giving people advice and them saying, wow, wow, that like really helped me. But it never entered into my mind that that would be something anybody would pay me for. Like that was so far off the radar for me once I had gotten out of childhood and adolescence. You know, to me, that natural wisdom that I had and that healing effect I had with words, that wasn't something you could monetize. That like you have to, like to me, what I had grown up with, this idea modeled to me and that I had lived through was that you have to hone skills that are marketable, like you learn things that you can then sell. It can't be something that's natural that you enjoy. It has to be something you learn and you in, and you can like enjoy. If not, if not enjoy, then at least you don't hate it. And what's funny is that when I started my business, like I I started my business, I started with some pro bono clients just to make sure I liked it because I didn't want to wind up in another situation where I had made a bunch of career changes and I hated it. And I realized, oh my gosh, this is it. Like nothing, I have never felt like this before. And the moment I took it seriously, so the moment I like invested in my own coach, the moment I decided this is the direction I'm going in, a week later, I got fired from my job. And I got fired from my job because I was bad at it. I just want to put it out there. Like I did not like that job. And so I was bad at it. And so I got fired. Okay. Like I'm not pulling any punches here. So, but what was funny was that like when I was, when I had just graduated law school, I had this almost like quarter life crisis where I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to be famous then because I was like, I'm 25. I'm not famous yet. And like most people are fa- who are famous are going to be famous by this point. So I guess I'm not going to be famous. And it like legit shook me. I was like, oh my God, because all the the underlying thread through this whole thing was like, of course I'm gonna be famous. I'll just be famous in different in a different capacity. I'll be a famous journalist, right? And now I'm like, well, now I'm just gonna be like some lawyer working in an office. And I guess that's that, right? Like, I guess this is it. And that like really shook me. And so because I realized, well, I haven't done it yet, so I guess it's never gonna happen, I threw it out right? I was like, well, I guess I have to come back down to reality and accept this. And so that that desire, that dream that scared my parents, that scared other people, I just like abandoned it. When I got back around to being a coach, so when I started my job hunt business and you know, I later became a business consultant after I'd been in business for so long, when I got to that point, I was like, no, I want to be a famous. Like I started doing some work on myself. I started uncovering like what is authentically me? What in my life have I done because it was programming and projection from the people who loved me and wanted things for me that that they wanted me to make sure I was safe and cared for? And what is authentically me? And when I realized I still have this desire to be famous, I was like, oh man, like at first I was like, that's so shallow. Like that's so, I can't believe I still want that. But I did. And I really, I had to dig in and say, well, why do I want that? And for me, my ultimate mission and what I had learned over the course of that 
10 to 15 years out in the workforce and, you know, since leaving home, I realized I want to change this work culture because I have never fit in any of these places. And I've never fit because I couldn't be myself in a lot of these places. And I couldn't fit because I don't like it's I'm not made for having an authority figure. I'm not made for like really set office hours, really set duties. Like I'm not, I'm just not, my brain doesn't seem to work in this linear fashion that so meant so much of our culture is wrapped up in. And I also don't believe in, I don't believe in working until you're burned out, right? Like I had a lot of issues thriving in any kind of job. And what's funny is that even all these, like I always had side jobs, always had internships. And I always had, you know, I was, would work in a bookstore, I'd work in a restaurant. I always had jobs along the way. And I have been fired by more jobs than anybody I've ever known. (laughs) And I know that, and I, it's so funny to me, but like, it doesn't bother me, but I realized it was like, I had to live through all of these things to see what was wrong and to like find my mission. And so my mission, I may have said like, I want to be a life coach, but my mission is fundamentally changing work culture like for the better, for employees and for companies. So I want all employees to know that they never need to stay in a toxic job because I've stayed in way too many. I've stayed in so many. And it took a toll on my mental health. It took a toll on my ability to dream. It took a toll on what I believed I was capable of. It took a toll on how I viewed myself, my self-worth. And so I want all employees to know that they can always find a better job that actually honors them and respects them with pay and with benefits and with the right culture. And then if they don't want that, they can always make money on their own. They can always start a business and they can start a business successfully. And then from the other side of this, I also want to work with, I'm also working with companies who want to retain employees by showing, by putting in these people first policies that show that they value them and kind of get back to that company loyalty that's been lost over the past few decades. So really long answer to explain like, why is it that people stop dreaming? And it's, they stop dreaming because of a life path like that. They get so far away from the goals and what they believed they could have in childhood. They get so far away from that that they believe they have to get rid of it completely instead of allowing it to evolve with them. And I'm not saying you have to stay married to the things that you wanted as a child or a teen or whatever it is. But a lot of times there's a lot of truth to like what we are naturally good at, what we are, what we authentically want a lot of that we can see in childhood before all the trauma, before all of the rejection, before all of the getting fired and getting pulled off your path and just scrambling to to survive. There's a lot of truth there. And I find that when people are finally able to get to a place where either they either their circumstances have allowed them to think about it or they've gotten so desperate because of their circumstances that they're willing to do anything to get back to some kind of authenticity, they often come right back to those dreams that they had as a kid. And so for me, I had to like allow that to evolve and allow that to come forward. And now that's what I help people do. So when I say like your dream should scare you, what are your big dreams? It's really, we have to combat 
all of the experiences that we had between childhood and now that have told us we have to turn off this like big vision for our life. We have to play it safe. We have to think about what's realistic, not what's possible. I love everything that you have said. And I recently um, was talking to somebody and we were talking about how we almost have these silos, you know, we're one person at work, we're one person with our friends, one person with our partners. And it would, and we were talking about being that whole person in our careers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, and it's so funny because I was very much like that before. And, you know, after a certain age, I was like, okay, I'm going to just be who I am at work as I am everywhere else. And it started with like, I would talk about crazy shit. <laughs> I would like be like, all right, what's everybody's uh, like Zodiac sign? Let's start there. Like, you know, I was like, I was always like out, like start would start talking about that one day, like on Halloween one time in my office, I was like, all right, come to my office for tarot card <laughs> readings. Like I was like everybody, I was able to like start being my authentic self and it was, you know, it didn't resonate with everybody, but everybody kind of like enjoyed me a lot more because of that. Like I know, even though I was fired from my last position, I have no hard feelings. I truly loved the woman I worked for. I love every person on that staff. Even now, I think very fondly of them. And I miss them because I know there's so much stigma there that it feels weird for them to reach out or for me to reach out. But I truly loved everybody there. And I have like no hard feelings. Like if I had been in charge of me, I would have fired me as well because it was not doing my job. I was not good at it. So I completely get it. And that's the thing is that you have to feel comfortable being who you are everywhere. And it's like such, it's been such a shift in my own life because even now, like I'll have people who follow me for months or years and they, you know, they'll watch all my free content, they'll read all my social media and they maybe never interact, but they'll eventually get on a call with me or like talk to me somehow and they're always like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm talking to you, one. Meanwhile, I'm like, who are you? Nice to meet you. <laughs> I didn't know that I had a fan out there. Cool. And then, two, they're like, you're exactly who you are. Like, you're exactly who you who you like come across as. Like, exactly how you show up. You are no different than how you are. And I'm just – and they're like, I appreciate that so much because so many people out there in the coaching community – and things like that, especially in the online space, it's there's this mentality of like sell people what they want and then give them what they need. And a lot of times that comes off as inauthentic, right? So you sign up to work with who you with this persona, and then behind the scenes, they're a completely different person, not in a bad way, just in a way where you were like, whoa, this isn't what I thought I was investing in. This isn't the advice I thought I was going to be getting. What happened to you know, the dynamic person or the analytical person or whatever it is that you thought they were that you were getting. So I'm very proud of that. But it's only because I've had to like ruthlessly strip back anything that did not align with me. So what are your go to questions that transforms your thinking and your mindset? Mm hmm. 
Well, a lot of what I do is around specifically the concept of money because mindset is such a huge topic. And so what I like to do, because I work so often with people where they're very concerned about money, either in their business trying to make it or scale it, like increase it, whether it's with professionals who are looking to make more of it or at least like change careers and not lose too much of it. And then finally, companies who want to make sure that their bottom line is nice and tight. I always have to, I'm always having to deal with the money mindset aspect of this because you cannot talk about strategy without talking about the mindset behind it. So the questions that I'm always going after with people is like, is that yours or someone else's? Does that belief belong to you or does it belong to somebody else? That's like always the first thing. The other thing is who told you that? I say that all the time in client calls. I'm like, who told you that? Well, I can't do this and do this. Who told you that? And it's so funny because I always get like one or two, like usually like the common threads are either, you know, my parents or caretakers or it's, well, no one, I guess. Right. Yeah. You told yourself that. That's not, that's not, doesn't mean it's true. And then the other questions I like are, what have been the instances where you've proved that wrong? Like what other mm-hmm. times in your life was that wrong? Or what are other examples from other people who show you that that's either false or not always true? So that's like, those are like the beginner questions that I come back to all the time. And then it's funny because even though I talk about dreaming really big, which I always do, then when it comes down to building your strategy, building strategies, building goals for right now, I'll say, does that feel doable? Does that feel good to you? Does that feel achievable? And so, because I, my big thing is you have to push the boundaries of your comfort zone, but you also have to meet yourself where you are. And so that's something I always say to people too, is like, but does that feel believable for where you are right now? There's nothing wrong with stepping up your goals to get to like the ultimate big dream because you can always outperform. But a lot of people beat themselves up when they set their immediate goals way too high and they don't meet them, which is why I'm like, all right, we know the big goal. We're going to set that goal for like a longer term. But now how do we look at what do I do in the next two weeks? What do I do next month? As you were talking, I had a, a memory pop up in my my head around money. And I'm going back many years ago um, my ex-husband and I were going to a family reunion, and I remember us driving up, and my ex-husband had a Mercedes, and we drove up, and I was like, park in the back. I don't want people to see see us. Oh and he's like, he's like, wait, <laughs> what? And I know, and I'm like, I know, I, I don't, I don't want people to see what we're driving. And that's popped up when you were Mm -hmm. talking because it's one of those things about who's, who told you that about, you know, you shouldn't have money or you shouldn't, you know, strive for more. You shouldn't, I'm sorry, that was just a, that's just came up for me. And that is so many years ago, that memory. Mm -hmm. And I worked a lot on that of, Yes, we are working hard and there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with driving a Mercedes. And I would venture to guess that that you can probably connect that memory to an even more distant one, maybe from childhood, because a lot of things we have now are always connected back then to like a lot of the narratives that we have. 
And like a really common one I get because I grew up, yeah, I grew up Roman Catholic. I'm not anymore, but I grew up with a lot of that. And so a lot of people who have grown up with a Christian upbringing, one of their big ones is it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven, right? Like we hear that one all the time, especially in the South, right? And people will always bring that up or they don't bring it up and I'll ask them like, did you have a Christian upbringing? Does this, does this sound familiar? Is this something? Cause it's always in the back of your mind, especially like when you go to church every Sunday and you hear that once a year minimum. Right. And the thing I tell them is, first of all, did you realize that the, the translation, the eye of the, the eye of a needle, that's, that's the name of a landmark. That was the la- name of a landmark back then where the only way to pass through was to take the bags off the camel in order to pass them through. And then you had to pass the bags through the other side of this landmark was the only way to, to pass through. So they're literally not saying like a literal camel going through a literal eye of a needle. It's about attachment. It's not, it's about being attached to what you have. And so then I say, it's just like in Buddhism, right? Like the Buddha had to be a prince. Like the Buddha was a prince before he became the Buddha. And there are two ways to reach enlightenment. So you can either be the kind of person who learns on attachment, not having attachment to anything, not placing value on anything, giving everything up and learning to live like a monk. And there's nothing wrong with that. Or you can be the kind of person who learn, who has all of their needs met in order to learn and have the capacity and the space to then say, well, if none of this matters, then what actually matters? And there's nothing wrong with that. But I venture that there's probably a memory where a parent, a caretaker, a relative, even a friend, somebody shamed a rich person, or there was like a narrative of, you know, oh, rich people are all like, are all dirt bags. Like they're all selfish. They're all this, Oh, look at that person showboating. And it may not even be around money. It could be something where it's like, Oh, that person's like bragging that their daughter got married before everybody else is like, whatever. There's always something about like showboating, right? Like there's probably something like that connected to the past, whether, or maybe it was that you were really proud of something and a parent or caretaker, even a teacher was like, don't brag about things. It's wrong to brag. It's wrong to show off. Right. So that's like usually where it's connected. So you have that one memory and there's always like a tendril that connects back to something even more formative where you have to really pat, like unpack that. That's the thing that you have to unpack. Yeah. And I've done a lot of work on on money beliefs and everything over the years. And you're right, it goes back to that childhood. And one of the memories that comes up, though, is when you, for example, may have something, a business, or you see somebody have a business and they lose it. You know, there's Mm -hmm. that you can't hold on to it. Right. Nothing gold can stay. Another good one, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You mentioned networking a while ago, and I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit more because we have been in COVID for the last two years. So I'd like for you to talk about networking pre-COVID and maybe how to network during COVID. Sure. Yeah. So I'll talk about it because in both terms, because networking is really important, whether you have a business or whether you're looking for a job or a career, 
looking to make a change in your career. But either way, like networking is not a natural skill. That's the first thing I'm going to say. A lot of people think like, oh, I'm just bad at this. Like I'm not like, like what happens? This is what I would always hear people think of when they talk about networking. I got to like go to some networking event, some professional stuffy event that's got like, you know, the stick, the hello, my name is name tags. And I got to go there and talk to people. And I guess the goal is to get business cards and ask these people if they know of any jobs or like somehow like create this really like surface level connection where I can then like follow up and ask them to help me in my job search. And that feels really icky to people because it is icky. (laughs) Like nobody enjoys that. So the first thing I want to say is like very few people can work a room. And working a room is a skill that like you either have because you're a social butterfly and you're an extrovert and you naturally enjoy talking to people. More often than not, people don't have that skill. But I'm giving everybody who's listening to this full permission to never go to networking events if you don't want to. Okay? It's got to come from, is this enjoyable? Is this fun for me? And is this putting me in my zone of genius so I can thrive? My main thing, because I'm a very, I'm actually like charmingly awkward is what I say. It made me a really good reporter because I would be really awkward in conversations, asking sensitive questions and sources would like feel weird and bad for me. So they would just like start talking like to like, oh God, make the awkward question stop. Like, (laughs) um, so I realized like what were, what, where did I feel comfortable and where did I thrive? And for me being an introvert where I thrived and where I felt most comfortable was email. So writing, I felt really good writing to people. And I also felt really good talking to them one-on-one. Now this is just like works for me. Some people don't feel great one-on-one. If you don't feel great one-on-one, maybe you're like more of a small group person. That can always be something you do, you do as well. So for me, I learned, okay, that if I'm going to expand my network past the people I already know, the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to track down people's emails because remember, I'm a former journalist here, so I'm really great at stalking. And so I would find people's emails somewhere on the website or somewhere. And if I couldn't find it, I would guess it because if I could find one email configuration somewhere, I could often guess what the email handle was, like the email address for the company. And I would just send them an email where I would say, hi, you know, I'm, well, I wouldn't say hi, my name is Jesse. It's like, hello, so-and-so. And then I would say, um, I came across your name while researching these organizations or researching this kind of thing. And I noticed that we have something in common. I wouldn't say literally that I would say what it was. So that could be, my goal, like I was researching these organizations because I'm looking to transition from this to this. And I noticed that you have a similar career trajectory to what I, what I'm looking to do. Or maybe it could be, I realized we went to the same alma mater. Like we both went to the university of Florida, or maybe if they have something personal on, on their bio on the website, like maybe they like love to read or they love to hike or, you know, maybe they've got a French bulldog who knows what it is. I would say like, I noticed that you're also like, you're also really into rock climbing and I climb at such and such gym. So I thought I would reach out. And I say that I would say next paragraph, like I was hoping to pick your brain on such and such, which 
you know, be, be wary, make sure this isn't somebody who gets paid to have their brain picked, but more often than not, like it's, it's totally fine. I was looking for any advice you might have on such and such. And I would love to take you to coffee, my treat near your office, you know, later this week, next week, something like that. So I would just write like a really personable email, kind of like that. And I would say it was about a 50-50 response rate. So that's the caveat I'm throwing out there, about 50-50 response. Um, But the people who said yes, oh my God, they exploded my network because how I would approach it is I'd meet them for coffee somewhere near their office. I'd buy it for them and I would just ask them for advice. And so ask them questions like, how did you get into this line of work? And like, where did you work before this? Or like, I noticed this on LinkedIn. Can you tell me more about it? Like, like I would just ask them questions and learn. And the one question I would always ask before I left is, is there anybody else I, that you know that I should talk to? Because if you can get three people, honestly, three people that you don't know to give you three more names right? Which is a pretty, like, that's a pretty conservative estimate. You went from having, you just went from having like zero contacts to having 12 all in your field. The goal, because you can't go in with the goal of asking for a job or asking for business from someone, right? Like that, you can't go in with that goal because that's like, that's when people put walls up. They're like, this person's just trying to use me. They just like, all they see is an opportunity here. No, Or like if they don't know of a job or they can't, they're not in a place to invest in their business, they're going to immediately be like, oh, I can't help this person. And so I feel bad about this. So I'm not even going to bother hanging out with them. Whereas if you ask for advice, everybody's always happy to give you advice. I genuinely believe most people want to help other people, especially when it requires little to no effort. And showing up for a coffee or giving you advice most people are going to be okay with that. Again, it's like a 50-50 shot. The main thing to keep in mind is like, I've never had somebody respond to the email and be like, fuck you. Okay. Like no (laughs) one's ever been mean. No one's ever been mean when they, when they've gotten an email, I've just not heard from them. So you ask them for advice. You ask them if there's anybody else they should talk to or that you should talk to, and then ask if they're willing to do an email introduction to them. Like, with that person, because now it's much easier now that now they got a friend vouching for them. And so it's so much easier to grow your network that way. Now, how do you adapt that in a post COVID world? Really keep it to zoom, send somebody like a a Starbucks gift card. If you want, you don't have to. A lot of times, if you just ask if somebody's willing to jump on a 10 minute phone call and like emphasize that it's short, emphasize like a 10 minute, 15 minute phone call or 15 minute Zoom conference. And I always say, like, if you can get them on video, like that's going to be that's good. If like if you thrive in that environment where you're able to like come across well, you know, you're poised go for the video because the goal with all of this is that you're essentially getting screened for potential opportunities well before the opportunities are posted. That's like for, you know, whether it's job or business. So the idea is that like you make a meaningful connection and I say, think about it like making professional friends. That's really what it is, is you're just making friends with people in a more professional capacity. And so when you kind of take on that 
that goal there where the goal is to like just grow the network and have a team of people helping you find opportunity. I'm so sorry. My cat just walked in and interrupted. Um, when you've got a team of people either who like you and they're keeping their ears open for job opportunities or business opportunities for you, you have a much better chance of actually connecting with something that's aligned with what you want. The other thing is that this saves you time. So like if you're a job hunter, this saves you a ton of time because a lot of times the way people job hunt is they're like, let me go to the website for this organization I really want to work at. Let me check the jobs or let me go to Indeed or LinkedIn and look at jobs there. And they'll go on there and like blindly apply for something and get an interview, not get an interview, who knows. But a lot of times like jobs have to be posted for a certain amount of time before they're filled. Even if they're being filled internally or being filled by referral, whatever, they're not actually available. And so what happens is that if you're making a contact with somebody at an organization or a company where they have a job opening and you make a, make a contact or a connection there and they're not bringing up the job or you're not asking about it, like you don't want to ask about it up front because remember, we don't want this to be transactional. This is about building long-term connections. So that way, anytime that you want to change jobs or look for business, you've got people who are willing to help you. And that you can also help if they were to need it. So when you do that, when you take what you can do is you wait until, okay, we've met in person, they've introduced me to some people, they're still not bringing up this position. I've already sent like a thank you note. Now that's when you can say, hey, so and so, I notice that you have this position open. Do you have inf- any information about it? When you just ask for information, that's when you find out they'll be like, oh, yeah, we're actually bringing on another person in the company, so it's not actually open. Um, That's why I haven't mentioned it. I did this one time when I made like a connection and the person told me, actually, I thought about bringing it up, but when we when we spoke in person, I realized we couldn't afford you. Like there's no way we'd be able to like pay the salary that you're looking for, like you know, or that you're, you're basically further along in your career than what this position is, even though you could do it. And like, I would love to work with you, but you know, this is just like, I can't meet that salary. So yeah, we really need somebody who's more entry level. That saves you so much time. And it's, it saves you so much like, you know, heartache over like, oh, I applied for what I think is my dream job and I never heard back. And it's like, why not? Like we want to look for backdoor opportunities essentially. And then if it is available, that's when they'll be like, Oh my God, I didn't realize that we had that position open. Um, interesting. Yeah. Uh, And then you can say, well, would you be willing to pass along my materials? And sometimes they're like, Oh yeah, of course I'll send that to my boss. Or they'll say like, Oh, you know, everything goes through HR here. So I can't, um, like just, you're just going to have to apply. That's when you say like, can I use your name in my cover letter? So then the first line you get to say, I'm writing at the recommendation of so-and-so who already works for you. And then, 
you know, with business opportunities, like really the purpose of building your professional network in this way is just so people know you. And so they know when they encounter other business owners or when they encounter friends who are starting businesses or scaling their businesses, whatever it is that you do, or dealing with some kind of relationship issue, whatever your coaching or your business is about, even if it's like glass installation, right? They're like, well, you know, I like, here's a bunch of advice. Here's my needs. Like, good to meet you. So cool. And it's like, I may not have that need, but the first time I hear somebody say, I really wish I had somebody who could help me with my social media strategy. They're going to be like, I know someone, I know someone and I can connect you. Right? Like that's the ultimate goal of networking is you want to build a team who is rooting for you and helping you get closer to success. Jesse, the way that you explain that is is so perfect. And I love that you also said that you've never received a rude note back because I think that stops a lot of people that mm-hmm. they think they're going to get back this like really mean note. No. And it kind of stops them in their track of, of building those relationships. Oh, absolutely. And I see the same thing with um, job hunters too, because I'm, you know, my thing is, put more of your effort into the networking. That doesn't mean that you can never apply like cold apply for a job. I mean, like if you really can't find anybody who works for the company or it's a job, I say, if it's a job where you'd like consider like pulling off a fingernail to have it, you'd be like, whatever fingernails grow back. It's fine. Yeah. It's like, you know, maybe a week of pain and then I'll have like my dream job, right? Like if it's that level, go ahead and apply, throw it in there. But People will hold themselves back sometimes, especially especially um, cis women will hold themselves back because they'll say like, well, I don't meet 100% of the qualifications. Um, and to which I say like, you know, most often like cis men, cis hetero men will apply when they meet 10% of the qualifications. So I say, well, keep in mind that you're always going to be more qualified than at least one one uh, average white guy out there, right? A <laughs> privileged white guy who thinks he's got this job when he can't, when he doesn't meet any of it. Um, but two, I say, let them tell you no. Don't you tell yourself no. Let them tell you no. Go ahead and apply. And I say, they're not going to call you up. If you apply and you really don't meet it, no one's going to call you up and say, hey, Cindy, we all saw your resume and you were so underqualified for this job that we all laughed. And then I put it in the trash. No one's going to do that. So like, why not? Right? That's right. Well, Jesse, I am loving our conversation. And I could go on and on with you because everything that you're saying, and I know that people can't see us, but you and I can see each other. And I'm just like shaking my head. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's been like, it's taken like everything in me to like not interrupt. And like, I'm like, oh, this is just, just such a good convo. I've been enjoying it. Oh, it's, it's great. But I want to ask you, before I ask you to tell us your website and how people can work with you, I want to know, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? No, I'm going to change it. What would you thank your 18-year-old self for if you could go back and, and talk to 18-year-old Jesse? Hmm. I've not, see, I always know like what I would tell my 18-year-old self, but what would I thank her for? That's a different question. 
Because what I always do is I, when someone says, what would you tell your 18 year old self growing up in Florida? I'm always like, wear sunscreen, bitch. Like, that's what I want to tell her. Like I got a forehead wrinkle at 34 and it's not going away. So, um, but what would I thank her for? Hmm. I guess I would thank her. I would thank her for being the rebel that she was. She was a rebel in such a small way. Like she was mostly like a goody goody two shoes and, did what most people wanted, very people pleasery, but she had a rebellious streak and she wasn't afraid to just like do what she wanted now and then. And I think that that and following her instincts. So whenever she, whenever she like, you know, really like kind of took action from a place or spoke up from a place of fuck it. I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to do it. And even if it, even if it, people don't react well to it, I'll learn how to live through it. I think it was that willingness to make mistakes and to kind of like lean into, I'd rather be outspoken and authentic than quiet. In those moments, I think I would thank her for that because that really set the stage for me to learn and grow in that way, because I was, you know, I was pretty angry when I was that age. I was angry. I felt like I was, you know, misunderstood. I felt like people didn't get me. And so I was very defensive. And I would often, I often did not sugarcoat anything that I said. And I thought that was authenticity. And now I've had to learn that there's a difference between like authenticity that doesn't land well or isn't invited is not necessarily a good thing. So I'm glad that I was so willing to be brash because I think that that brashness has now allowed me to find balance as an adult. Whereas if I had just stuck to being a people pleaser or stuck to being telling people what they wanted to hear, I think it would be much harder for me to be my authentic self today. I'm glad I overcompensated in a way that often rubbed people the wrong way because I think it's allowed me to find a more balanced version of my personality now. You are absolutely right. Because I used to ask the question, what would you tell your 18-year-old self about the season of life you're in now. And that is a total different question Mm -hmm. than looking back and thanking that 18-year-old self for being a rebel, you know, for for those pieces that actually is what moved us forward to, to actually take action, to do our work, to do what we needed to do to become who we are in this season of life. Oh yeah, she had a mouth on her and I'm I guess I'm glad she did. So <laughs> <laughs> So how can people work with you? How can they find you? Your website, social media? Sure. So I normally point people to my two Facebook groups because that is where I do lots of free training. I have free like I put so much free information there because I believe everybody deserves access to a high ticket coach, no matter what your like income level is. So you can, if you're looking to work in the business aspect of things, I have a group called five figure launch Queens, and you can get there from going to the number five figure launch I'll take you right to that Facebook group. 
And then if you're looking for job hunt and career advice, that is Six Figure Career Queens. So again, number six, figurecareerqueens.com. That'll take you right to the Facebook group as well. And then I'm on social media everywhere with some combination of Jesse De Silva or the Millennial Money Witch. That was a name given to me by Forbes. So that's my little handle in a lot of places. And yeah, I'm on all of the platforms. So come find me. I have loved having you on. Seriously, I have loved our whole conversation. And I appreciate you being a guest. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Cindy. Well, is there anything else you would like to say? Mm. Any parting wisdom? (laughs) I guess my parting wisdom is don't be afraid to start with exactly where you are. So there's no shame in recognizing that even though you have big, scary goals, that you can't immediately bite off all of them. It's okay that if your goal is like, I want to make, maybe you want to be a millionaire one day. It's okay if you don't set your goal to be a millionaire by the end of the year. It's okay even if your goal isn't to make six figures by the end of the year. Because what allows you to make the progress toward that big, big goal is setting achievable goals and hitting them. Nobody can show you what's possible more than yourself. And if you really don't feel like it's possible for you, go out and find people that you relate to who show you it is. A lot of what we believe is possible is just from exposure. And so as much as you can expose yourself to people, whether whether they are like people, like celebrities, whether they're people you personally know, or whether they're fictional TV characters, movies, books, it doesn't matter. All of that counts. All of that allows you to see what you're able to step into. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Leaving a rating and review helps to improve rankings in iTunes. It shows engagement, which may attract sponsors, and it is essential for the podcast to be discovered by new listeners. Plus, it would mean the world to me. Thanks again. Until next time, live inspired.